This week's episode is brought to you by Studio Sweden. Studio is out to revolutionize the way in which people use headphones by removing the choice between a pair that looks good and a pair that works well. They produce stylish headphones with great sound quality at a fraction of the cost of their competitors while maintaining a sleek and stylish look. I personally use a pair of their tray headphones for my bus commute and I love them. Whether it's catching up on my own podcasts on the way to work, or using them at the gym to burn off a little steam after class, they're fantastic. Plus, they come with a nifty little leather bag to protect them. Studio is offering listeners of the show 15% off their order with the coupon code JAPAN. So head on over to studiosweden.com, that's S-U-D-I-O-S-W-E-D-E-N.com, and check them out today. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast. Episode 235, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken. This week, I want to return to a story that I rediscovered while preparing for the Ishikawa Goemon episode a few weeks back. In the process of preparing, I was rereading Ivan Morris's The Nobility of Failure, a book that I have many fond memories of remembering I was supposed to have read a few chapters of about eight hours before the start of an undergraduate seminar. And just in case you're listening, Dr. Johnston, that's definitely a joke, and I never forgot to do the reading and cram it in the hallways 15 minutes before class. Never would I do such a thing. Anyway, the nobility of failure is, remember, the history of a sort of heroic archetype in Japanese history, that of the tragically doomed hero. Morris's argument is that these heroes have a special attraction in Japan because their rebellious against the grain nature makes them stand out in a society that prizes conformity. Which is, I think, a bit of a generalization. Most societies prize conformity, or at least some kind of boundaries around non-conformity. But that's just me picking nits. Anyway, the story I came across while rereading Morris is one from the earliest recorded moments in Japanese history. It's about as far back as you can go before you have to start working primarily with archaeological records instead of written ones. Specifically, the story comes from the 500s. Now, it's been a while since we've gone this far back in Japanese history, so I think it behooves us to recap the action of this earliest century of Japan's recorded history a little bit. By the 500s, the Japanese imperial house had succeeded in unifying a good chunk of what we now consider to be Japan, specifically the southern two-thirds of Honshu, all of Shikoku, and the northern half of Kyushu, were under at least the nominal control of the early Japanese emperors. There were still parts of the country that were, of course, out of reach. Northern Honshu was home of the aboriginal Emishi. Southern Kyushu was home to some still-independent states, the Kumaso and Hayato clans in particular, who kept the emperor's rule at a distance. And at some point during all of this, a group of people who spoke a language pretty close to ancient Japanese made their home in the Ryukyu Islands, beginning a cultural divergence between mainland Japan and the Okinawan people. For all their growing power, though, the command of Japan's early emperors was limited, 
They operated sort of as an early feudal monarch, the first among equals among a host of other rulers. The majority of the territory ruled by the emperors was, in fact, actually controlled by powerful local families. These clans governed their territories and enjoyed religious leadership as the chief priests and chosen rulers of their clan's ujigami, or patron god. Those clan leaders would in turn pledge loyalty to the emperor. Japan's early mythological histories, the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki, were actually written in part to reinforce this political hierarchy by placing the gods of subordinate clans underneath the leadership of Amaterasu, the sun god and ujigami of the imperial clan. Despite this hypothetical mythic and political subordination, though, local clans actually enjoyed pretty substantial power. In an arrangement that would set the tone for future clans, which would dominate the hypothetically sovereign imperial court, they used a combination of marriage alliances with the imperial family, giving them influence over future emperors, and domination of leading positions in government to secure power over policy. In particular, during this time, two clans came to dominate the political scene. The first, and definitely most powerful, was the Soga clan. The Soga had risen to power and influence early in the 500s, using carefully constructed marriage alliances with both the imperial clan and other clans across the country. In particular, the Soga pioneered a tactic that would be exploited for the next millennium and a half marrying daughters of the Soga family to imperial princes in order to ensure that future emperors would grow up with Soga mothers and Soga father-in-laws who could guide them into realizing correct policy, which is, of course, a shorthand for doing whatever the Soga wanted. Soga influence was also grounded in their substantial contacts with the Asian mainland, the Soga, like most other leading Japanese clans, including the Imperial Clan, were descended at least in part from Korean immigrants, but the Soga in particular maintained very close contacts on the Korean Peninsula. This enabled the Soga to serve as intermediaries between Japan and the most advanced civilization in the area, and at that point probably the whole world, China by way of Korea. Soga clan chiefs helped import Korean and Chinese goods, but they also brought in Korean and Chinese ideas, and were uniquely positioned to become the patrons of one of the most influential imports of the time, Buddhism. By the 500s, Buddhism was well established in China. Its history in China goes back to the late Han Dynasty, about 300 years before this time, and by the 500s it was one of China's major religions, helped in part by the fact that horseback nomads who conquered parts of North China were often Buddhist themselves. Korea, meanwhile, was introduced to Buddhism in the 300s, and by the 500s it was a major religion among all of Korea's fragmented kingdoms. The Soga were thus able to sponsor Buddhist monks to come to Japan beginning in the 530s, and to promote Buddhism as a religion of the world's most sophisticated kingdoms, giving it a natural attraction to Japan's aristocrats who would, of course, want to model themselves after the aristocrats of influential Korea and China. The other leading clan of the time was the Mononobe, whose rise to power had been much more straightforward. At first, the Mononobe had been a clan of priests, delegated a degree of ritual authority by the emperors. However, as time passed and the Mononobe drew closer to the imperial clan, 
they were granted substantial judicial and military authority. By the mid-400 CE, the Mononobe had become a sort of military auxiliary to the imperial clan. They were special armed enforcers of imperial rule. The Mononobe clan pedigree was both older than that of the Soga, their special priestly status dates back to the misty, shrouded past of Japan, and more closely tied to the established nature religion that I will call Shinto even though it is not very close to the practice as it exists in Japan today. As a result, the Mononobe clan leadership was very opposed to the spread of Buddhism, because it was viewed as both an attack on their religious prerogatives and as part of the Sogut clan challenge to Mononobe authority. Opposition from the Mononobe and other religiously conservative clans was not, though, enough to bring a halt to the Soga import of Buddhism. In particular, the new teaching developed a following at the imperial court, thanks both to its fancy foreign pedigree and its concern with areas of human interest that Shinto does not deal very directly with, death and the afterlife. Now, despite the rather substantial tension between these two clans, it took a few decades for things to really come to a head. In the meantime, the Mononobe and Soga competed for power back and forth, each rising as the other fell. That competition was led by the chiefs of the two clans, Soga no Umako and Mononobe no Moria. Supposedly, the hostility between these two men was not only political, but personal. The Nihon Shoki recounts one example of the enmity between the two, recounting an event that took place after the death of an emperor. Quote, when his majesty's body was lying in the palace of temporary burial in Hirose, the great minister Lord Sogano Umako came to deliver his eulogy. As he entered the hall, he was wearing a sword. Seeing this, the great chieftain Mononobe no Moria burst out laughing and exclaimed, he looks just like a little bird that has been pierced by an arrow. When it was Lord Moria's turn to deliver his oration, he was trembling so violently that Lord Umako mocked him, saying he ought to have bells tied to his limbs." Unquote. So yeah, not a lot of love lost there. The Nihon Shoki recounts that Mononobe no Moria was able to gain ascendancy during the rule of Emperor Bidatsu, the 30th Emperor of Japan, who reigned from 572 to 583, and who falls under that rubric of probably but not definitely a real person who actually existed. The Nihon Shoki says that Mononobe no Moria, alongside political allies in the Nakatomi clan, was able to convince Emperor Bidatsu to reject Buddhism late in his reign on the grounds that it went against the traditional religion from which the emperor's power was derived. A statue of the Buddha that the Sogas had gifted to the emperor was unceremoniously chucked in a river to mark this break with the foreign religion. The Nihon Shoki then records that an epidemic swept through the capital, which it and the Soga clan blamed on this sacrilege. The plague killed Emperor Bidatsu, leading to the occasion of that awkward funeral scene described earlier, and led to the ascension of a new emperor, Bidatsu's brother, Emperor Yomei. Unfortunately, only two years into his reign, Yomei took ill as well. And here was the Soga's great opportunity. Thanks to that Soga talent for marriage politics, Emperor Yome was Soga no Umako's nephew, and Umako leveraged that family connection to convince Emperor Yome to allow a Buddhist priest into the imperial palace to minister to him. 
As a result of the presence of this priest, Yomei would become the first emperor in Japanese history to convert to Buddhism and embrace it for himself. Though that wouldn't really help him as he'd die in 587 after a pretty short reign. His death was ultimately what brought things to a head between the Soga and the Mononobe. The emperorship was to fall to one of Emperor Yomei's many brothers and half-brothers. His father, Emperor Kinmei, who had been Bidatsu's father as well, had been pretty prolific. However, which brother was not yet clear. The Mononobe and their allies in the Nakatomi clan preferred a younger Shinto traditionalist, Prince Anahobe. The Soga, meanwhile, preferred the older and more pro-Buddhist Prince Hatsusebe. Neither side was willing to back down, and the Soga actually outright accused the Mononobe of assassinating Emperor Yomei to install an anti-Buddhist monarch, and a few months later, Prince Anahobe was assassinated in a plot that the Mononobe would accuse the Soga of masterminding. And so the War of Words became a, well, war of war. According to the traditional telling, the Mononobe had the upper hand early in the conflict. A more traditionally militaristic clan by nature, remember their rise to power was predicated in part on their role as military enforcers of the imperial will, the Mononobe just had better generals and fighters at their disposal. However, in the long term, it became clear that the Soga had a substantially better hand to play than their opponents did. Through careful manipulation of political alliances, they had brought around most of the central clans of Japan to their side, and a good many imperial princes as well. One of these princes, a relative unknown at the time, Soga no Umako's grandson, Prince Umayado, would go on to become one of Japan's most famous figures under the title to which he is known to history, Shotoku Taishi. By contrast, the Mononobe had their own allies, but they were concentrated on the far-flung rural borders of the country, those whose border seats required them to spend a great deal of time fighting, and whose relative isolation predisposed them to a degree of cultural conservatism, both traits that led them to Mononobe sympathies. However, by that very same token, said clans were not used to having to take orders or work together, and their strength was scattered to the borders of Japan, far from where the confrontation over control of the center of power would take place. Knowing this, Soga no Umako decided to force an early confrontation, hoping to isolate and crush the Mononobe before reinforcements could arrive. Early on, though, it looked like this might not work. When the final confrontation came at Mount Shiki to the east of modern Osaka, Mononobe soldiers were able to hold off the Soga attack by using a clever fortification made from bundled rice plants. These plants were used to build a sort of arrow-blocking palisade on the lightly wooded slopes. They were then able to press a counterattack against the Soga, driving them from a house on the battlefield and then repelling the Soga assaults that tried to retake it. Mononobe no Moria himself was described as climbing into the fork of a tree trunk and firing down arrows, quote, like streaks of rain. However, according to the Nihon Shoki, the turning point came in two parts later in the battle. First, Prince Shotoku cut down a sacred tree and fashioned its wood into a crown containing the images of the four heavenly kings, guardian spirits of Buddhism associated with the four cardinal directions, Tamonten, Zochoten, Jikokten, and Komokten. He then swore to build a Buddhist temple dedicated to the heavenly kings if the Soga won the day, energizing his forces. 
Probably the more important work was done by a relatively unknown Soga soldier, Tomino Obito, who was able, by hook or by crook, to get a clean shot at Mononobe no Moria in the midst of the battle and kill him with a single arrow. Their leader dead, the Mononobe's will to resist collapsed and their army retreated. The Soga won the day. Now, the Soga-Mononobe conflict is a very important one for the shape of modern Japan. The Soga victory, for one thing, secured the position of Buddhism on the islands. The Soga choice for the emperorship, yet another child of Emperor Kinmei and nephew of Soga no Umako, Emperor Sushun, promptly issued decrees for the building of some of Japan's first government-sponsored Buddhist institutions. While he himself would never become emperor, the closest he ever get was the ascent of his mother, Empress Suiko, to the throne, the crown-carving prince Shotoku would go on to become one of Japan's most legendary political and religious figures. He would promote Buddhism across the country, supposedly receiving a visit from the great Buddhist sage Bodhidharma in the process, and, in his letters to China, would coin the name Land of the Rising Sun as a reference to Japan. It is, to be fair, a bit of a stretch to credit the spread of Buddhism in Japan entirely to that Soga victory, but Soga victory certainly went a long way towards securing the position of the Buddhist establishment in Japan. The victory was also a big one in terms of establishing the pattern of Japanese politics. With the destruction of the Mononobe, the Soga stood unopposed as a first among equals, in many ways surpassing even the imperial clan in their power. They set about reorganizing Japan away from the old clan-dominated structure and towards a more centralized arrangement of power. For example, they took the first steps towards rotating provincial governorships to prevent families from building too strong of a power base independent of the central government. Ironically, the culmination of this first centralizing political project in Japanese history would come in 645 with the Taika reforms after half a century of Soga ascendancy, in a series of reforms carried out by enemies of the Soga who destroyed the clan in a coup while keeping most of the changes the Soga had made. More personally speaking, the battle was also a big turning point in the life of Tomino Obito, the Soga soldier who killed Mononobe no Moria. He received half of Moria's personal holdings and wealth and slaves as a recognition of his victory. And yet, 17 minutes into the podcast, none of that is what we're actually here to talk about today. Instead, about three quarters of the way through the script, I want to introduce us to the figure who actually captivated me enough to write this episode. We know very little about him other than his name, Yorozu, and the fact that he was one of Mononobe no Moria's retainers. Yorozu was a Mononobe vassal and a commander of some rank, charged with guarding a Mononobe mansion in Naniwa, what's now Osaka. When he heard the outcome of the battle, he fled the city in the night to his home village of Arimaka. There he avoided even his own family and fled into the hills. When news of his flight reached the victorious Soga, they proclaimed him a traitor and ordered both Yorozu and his family put to death. On hearing this, Hirozu came back down from the mountains. The Nihon Shoki says, quote, His clothes were torn and filthy, and there was a look of great distress on his face. Unquote. Their charge located, the local guardsmen went to surround him and bring him in for execution. Spooked, Yorozu ran for it again, hiding in a bamboo thicket. When the guardsmen tracked him down, Yorozu used an ingenious system to take them out. 
He tied strings to stalks of bamboo around the thicket, enabling him to shake the stalks from a distance. That shaking, of course, made it look like Yorozu was in that spot, disturbing the grove with his movements. The guards were thoroughly taken in by this ruse, attacked a totally empty area of the thicket, and Yorozu lured them into an ambush as a result, where he slew several of them with his bow. Now distinctly unhappy with what was supposed to be a straightforward assignment, the guardsmen came back in numbers to flush Yorozu from his lair. They chased him to the river at the edge of the village, where one of the guardsmen waiting in ambush was able to shoot Yorozu in the knee. According to the Nihon Shoki, Yorozu pulled the arrow out, strung it, and shot said guardsman right back. Collapsing from his injuries, Yorozu proclaimed, quote, The Emperor's shield, a man whose courage would be devoted to defending his majesty, that is what I wished to be. But no one asked what my real intentions were, and now instead I find myself in these dire straits. Let someone come forward who can speak with me, for I wish to know whether I am to be killed or made prisoner, unquote. However, this request to talk was met with a renewed rush from the guardsmen, at which point Irozu once again took up the fight. Somehow, the chronicle is unclear how, he warded off their incoming arrow fire while shooting back on only one knee, taking out over 30 guardsmen in the process. Then, realizing the hopelessness of the situation, he snapped his own bow in three parts, bent his sword with his foot and chucked it into the river, and then committed suicide with a dagger to avoid capture. The imperial court ordered Yorozu's body cut to pieces and exposed to the elements, but were persuaded to change tack when, as so often happens in the ancient Japanese chronicles, a sign from the heavens seemed to show them the error of their ways. Specifically, Yorozu's white dog came to the grounds where the body was to be dismembered, picked up its master's head, and took it to a nearby mound. There the dog stood guard over the head until it eventually starved to death. Impressed by this display of loyalty, the court changed its position, ordering that Irozu's relatives be allowed to build a tomb, both for their own great warrior and for the dog, too. Beyond the actual outcome of the Soga Mononobe conflict and its admittedly pretty profound impact on the course of Japanese history, this is what I find really interesting about the whole story. Even with the ludicrously superheroic feats, killing 30 guardsmen with an injury, the character of Yorozu feels very real because of that doubt he faces at the beginning of the story when he tries to run and hide. That makes his decision to fight all the stronger, the pathos of his end is also strengthened. Of course, it goes without saying there's no guarantee the man himself or the story around him is real. Certainly, the feats themselves are exaggerated. My approach is generally to accept that there's some grain of truth in a story like this one, unless there's a clear motive for making the whole thing up, but that's very much my opinion and not something you should take for fact or accept yourself without some pondering. That said, even if the story is totally invented, it does demonstrate something very real about the values of the society it came from. The Soga Mononobe conflict took place centuries before anything we could identify as a distinct samurai class and yet we already see the martial values of that class on display. The emphasis on archery in combat, on valor, loyalty, and service, and an emphasis on death as an assertion of power, choosing the moment to die, making a stand for your values in a way that would be recognizable to samurai moralists more than a thousand years later. 
Ian Morris depicts Yorozu as the epitome of the value of Makoto, absolute sincerity. He says, quote, the focus of Makoto varies in different periods of history, but its common denominator has always been a purity of motive, which derives from man's longing for an absolute meaning out of time and from a realization that the social, political world is essentially a place of corruption whose materiality is incompatible with the demands of pure spirit and truth." Unquote. In other words, Makoto is the assertion of absolute and objective idealism in the face of a subjective, shades-of-gray world. The value of Makoto would become an important aspect of samurai thinking about the nature of their class and its social role, but it's also one that is far more universal. All of us, in the end, can be moved by a moment of powerful sincerity, which gives a story like that of Yorozu a timelessness beyond its historic context. Then, finally, there's the sort of ambiguity in the political ethics of the story. One of the most popular cliched phrases of East Asian history is, the victor is the imperial army, the defeated is the rebel army. In other words, victory allows the victor a sort of retroactive justification because they can claim to enjoy the sanction of the authorities after the fact. Yet Yorozu was not the victor, he was by any accounting a rebel but in this story, he too is allowed to claim imperial sanction for his actions. Remember the whole thing about how he wants to be the Emperor's shield? His actions are remembered heroically, and he ends up with a monument to his glorious last stand. Partially, that's a testament to the fact that by the time the Nihon Shoki was written, the victorious Soga clan had fallen in turn to its enemies, and the writers were not predisposed to be kind to the Soga as a result. But partially... It's also an artifact of the nature of the conflict itself. Really, with the exception of the wars against the Amishi and the Mongols, Japan's pre-modern warriors mostly fought each other. Their conflicts were almost always internal. The enemy always had a familiar face, which made it easy to sympathize with their motives even when you disagreed. Even the most hardened Soga's supporter would recognize Yorozu's value of Makoto and his professed devotion to the Emperor which made it easy for victors to remember him graciously. That shared cultural context accounts, in part, for the enduring phenomenon of the doomed hero in Japanese history. There's always something to recognize and respect in stories like that of Yorozu, or Minamoto no Yoshitsune, or the Shinsengumi, or Saigo Takamori, because even in defeat, they seem to reflect the best values of Japanese society. Honor, loyalty, sincerity, devotion things that even their enemies would recognize as good. In the end, Yorozu's story is not that important. He didn't shake Japan to its foundations or radically change its history. Yet, in a sense, he sets the pattern for a certain type of hero and for their place in Japan's culture, and that, plus the fact that it's just a fun story, makes him worth remembering. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Andrew Miller for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we tackle the life and work of Japan's most famous director, 
Kurosawa, Akira, 